This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. So this, uh, we're understood, uh, this rainbow crosswalk. And by the way, this is kind of related to a story we talked about a few months ago where they're installing new kinds of crosswalks. You know, the great big long thick lines right across the crosswalk, which essentially uh, is to ensure pedestrian safety. And that's a wonderful idea. So uh, the uh, international BIA uh, is wanting to put one uh, down by Theodore Aquarius. And uh, it's, let's just say, I don't know that anybody's really opposed to this. At least I haven't heard from anybody that's opposed to it yet. But uh, others are saying, well, that's, that's nice, but it could be and should be a lot more being done to try to show support for the LGBTQ community. Deirdre Pike joins us, who is a senior planner, of course, with the Social Planning and Research Council here in Hamilton, who wrote a report last year, which I think is very relevant to the discussion that's going to be ongoing now. Deirdre, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. Nice to talk to you. Very quickly, let's talk about the concept of this idea, first of all, putting a, a rainbow crosswalk in there. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's fact. When I first uh, received a call yesterday to talk about it, I was very excited because uh, I'm from uh, London originally, and, um, and in the city of London, Ontario, at the corner in front of City Hall, at the corner of Victoria Park, where Pride events are held each year, they have a rainbow crosswalk. And uh, Renee and I were there at Christmas. My partner and I were there at Christmas. And when we walked through that uh, crosswalk, she said, this is so fabulous. Why don't we have this in Hamilton? So I thought it was great news when I first read about it. And, uh, and, and I still think it's a, a nice idea, but I think that um, there's a lot of context missing in terms of um, why, why it's happening, some of the comments I've heard from uh, Councillor Farr in terms of using a symbol that is our... Um, it is not, um, as I read one place, a, a symbol of tolerance. Nobody wants to be tolerated here. This is a symbol of inclusion and one that's hard fought for and that people go to jail for wearing a rainbow flag in many places and they have been arrested for our sexual orientation and gender before. Uh, this is not um, a pretty thing to make an intersection look nice and make um, you know, an illusion of safety or welcome. This is a political symbol and uh, not something to better the business improvement uh, area. Yeah, it's it's a statement. It should be a statement anyway, as opposed to an enhancement to, a, to as you say, to a street landscape. I I think, well, I agree with that. I don't know if, if a whole lot of other people do. I hope they do by this stage. Uh, I, I'm trying to put this in context too, Deirdre, and I can remember it wasn't too many years ago sitting right here in this chair and in this studio talking about uh, the fact that the mayor of the day would not raise the pride flag at City Hall and there were court injunctions about this and on and on it goes. Uh, I, I guess the overarching question here is, have we moved the yardsticks in this discussion over the years? Um, you know, so we are sitting in this conversation right in the very, uh, very similar context as you're speaking about, um, where City Council has been um, hauled up by the Ontario Human Rights uh, Commission for um, their for the treatment of a trans woman in a um, you know by a city mm-hmm. employee, and so I mean we're just weeks away from that going before city council, and the recommendations that have come forward are okay, but they're not robust. They're, nobody's jumping on um, the kind of extensive training that's required for people to understand um, that the um, reality of trans people in our community and um, and the privilege that uh, you and I face as cisgender people. And so, uh, you know, this is, a, what do you call it, window dressing, right? You know, let's put up a, a nice little rainbow intersection um, in front of a bar that is um, 
in front of a building that is, uh, you know, rife with uh, sadness. You know, Ron Matai, a gay restaurant owner, beaten while he owned that place. It closes. Then we have uh, the potential of the Steel Lounge, which provides great community space for a little over a year, and it's gone. So it's it's an awkward position, even I think geographically for the thing. So so I am not. You know, I, the work that I do, and you, I think you remember, is called Creating LGBTQ Positive Space. And yep. so I'm not one to come into a conversation and say, what the hell's going on here? This is terrible. This is not where I'm at. Uh, there is good intent here. But I think that people need to understand their impact more than their intent. Well, and I know that you did a report for, for the, the Social Planning and Research Council last year about this. And, and, and I thought it was a pretty objective. I think you and I talked about it at the time here on the program. Uh, and, and to put this in the context, and like this is a nice idea, but I mean, it, you know, I don't want to put this on the list of saying, well, Hamilton's a leader in, in trying to show support for this. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a bad idea. And as you say, yeah, London, Ontario has one by City Hall. Uh, I would have suggested just, you know, nobody asked me, but since I'm on the air now, I'll say it. I don't think it's the best location for it either. If they wanted to really do something about this, there's probably much more prominent places they could and probably should put this. And, and maybe that should have been part of the discussion. That's right. I think Councillor Jason Farr missed a good opportunity here when the BIA came to him with the idea. Uh, I think the proper uh, route for this would have been to go to his fellow councillor, Aidan Johnson, not because he's gay, but because he is the councillor responsible for the LGBTQ advisory committee to the city and say, hey, they've got this idea down in my ward. What do you think? And then and take that to LGBTQ people. I don't see Susie Braithwaite... Um, Although she says, uh, you know, uh, that uh, they have a tradition in that area of being LGBTQ inclusive, I'm not sure what that means or how that's documented. And um, uh, and again, the idea is nice for that area, but I think it needs to have a perspective from LGBTQ people um, bringing that forward. Allies are essential, and and yay, Susie, for thinking of this. But Susie needed particular helpful direction from her counselor and from moving that uh, from an isolated idea to um, a citywide uh, initiative. Um, if it's the 150th anniversary of Canada that she's getting this money for, it's not about one intersection in this city. It's about a city initiative. And I think that that, that money is wrongly placed by um, doing it in one area and not for the whole city. Do you get the sense, uh, Deirdre, when you look at this, uh, like I say, you've had a few hours now to digest it, that it's almost as if they're saying, hey, LGBTQ community, look what we're doing for you, as opposed to being inclusive and say, we've got an idea here, let's sit down and talk about how we can best do this. Well, yes, and so, you know, really the underlying issue or reality or framework here is capitalism. The Business Improvement Association wants our money, right, and wants and, and, and we're over-associated with the arts community, so I know that part of this is about, you know, the... King William, or I'm not really sure of the proper name, but I know that they have an alternative or a, an, an addition, I should say, to the super crawl. And uh, so this is about promotion. And this is trying to say, hey, queer and trans people, come on down here. It's safe. Spend your money. Come to, you know, come to the arts because we know that's what you like. I think there's a lot of uh, misassumptions and some, again, good intention. But please take a moment to um, look at uh, look at the impact, look at the importance of engaging uh, the community in a way that has integrity and dignity for us, not to, uh, not to use our symbol. You have co-opted our symbol uh, to say, Jason Farr says, you know, it's good, it's good about LGBTQ inclusion, um, and 
uh, we'll, it'll make our intersection safer. My symbol that people have died for is not to uh, is not for traffic inclusion. It's for people inclusion. All right, this is still in the planning stages. Uh, you know, the, you, you mentioned there's grant money that's available for this. Uh, I don't even know if they made the application, but they certainly don't have the money yet. Anyway. Uh, there's nothing carved in stone here or in Good. asphalt, Good. I guess. So let's back yeah. up a couple of steps and, and let's, uh, we're, I'm asking you and, and, and others now, uh, if we could redo this, or well, let's hit the restart button here. How could and should this be done going forward now? So I think there's two, you know, at least two streams that we have to look at. One is, uh, a subsection of that report that I released in June said flags are not enough and that before we go putting up symbols of inclusion, we have to ensure that the space has indeed been deemed safe and inclusive. And that's awkward and, and, and problematic in lots of places, but there have been lots of uh, good steps taken forward at City Hall. And I think that um, the best place, uh, you know, so, so knowing that, that there needs to be that background work, that there needs to be more training, that there needs to be a systemic assessment of the city's um, LGBTQ inclusion policies. We'll set that aside and say, okay, this is a good um, idea to, to, uh, to mark an area uh, that's inclusive and let's get this sidewalk going. Um, I think that uh, the first step would be certainly to ask the city advisory committee to set up some sort of a... Um, an engagement process so that queer and trans people in the city can um, give their opinions about this, uh, where they think it goes. And then, if I was one of those people that was asked about that, I would say that it should go, um, you know, at City Hall, like maybe at that Sumner's Lane intersection and Bay Street or something like that. You know, that's an idea I have just because I think that the city that once said no to the flag needs to say yes to the rainbow and mark it like a tattoo in front of its steps. Like what they did in London, exactly. Yeah. And and what's the matter with that? I mean, my understanding is they got to oh, no, put I'm one of these. That's good. Yeah. That's what, that's what I'm saying. It's a good thing. But uh, you know, so let's set a pro- uh, But that's just my idea. That's only my opinion. And so I think what really needs to happen is a process so that a bunch of people in the community, uh, and especially those that are most marginalized and those who live in that neighborhood, like people who live in Beasley neighborhood. Um, you know, one of the more economically vulnerable neighborhoods, and our, we know our queer and trans population faces um, some uh, uh, deeper levels of poverty than others. And so, um, you know, let's make sure that it's a really inclusive uh, process with people of color, trans people of color, etc., and and find out what they think. And I, you know, and of course, I want my way. <laughs> so if I had my way, it would be at City Hall. But we'll see. It might maybe that is the area. Maybe people want it there, and then I'd feel comfortable saying yes but not based on the BIA's um, assessment alone. That's, that's the only thing. And once again, thank you to Susie Braithwaite for a, a good idea. Um, you know, let's just bring it in uh, properly and have Councillor Farr bring it to uh, Council to look at it from a bigger perspective. We, we should mention, by the way, we did try to reach out to Susie to uh, join us on the program today, and I uh, uh, did not get a response. It's not available. So we'll, we'll try to obviously talk with her in a lighter plan. But you know what good. I find interesting about this, Deirdre? Is is that you've got so many people on city council right now that are so, uh, you know, 
focused on, well, f- we've got a process. We've got to follow process. Let's send it to this committee. Let's get this report. That uh, This is almost done in an arbitrary fashion. You would have thought that, we, you know, uh, taking this whole concept uh, and, and putting it over onto the advisory committee would have been a no-brainer. It would be. It, it, you're right. It would be if city council would agree itself as a body to take LGBTQ positive space training, but they have not. The police board took the training. Um, not that that's enough, but it's certainly the one clear step we know in the community that is a beginning. Um, and the police board took the training, and, um, you know, there were city councillors on that board that, that didn't show up. So I know that only two city councillors have had uh, positive space training. So Jason Farr isn't one of them. And so, therefore, he wouldn't have a larger perspective to perhaps, you know, to think, hey, I, I should take this to the LGBTQ advisory committee. And so, again, um, the city has some concrete steps to take itself. I would, you know, Mayor Fred Eisenberger has taken the training. Um, I, I hope they Who else on council has? Uh, Fred Eisenberger and um, Councillor uh, Ferguson. Well, that's great. That's two down and 14 to go. Yeah, yeah. Councillor Whitehead had an opportunity. He stepped away from that. He didn't uh, take the training and... Um, and then the rest uh, that aren't, aren't on the police board. So that was that one opportunity. But I really think that that's, you know, they've, they've uh, dictated that public health, uh, every staff person at public health over, um, over the last two years, uh, I trained 350 of those staff people, dictated by the Board of Health, but the Board of Health hasn't taken the training. Which is City think, Council, once again. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we keep coming back to this, don't we? Yes, for sure. Well, you know, it's it's one thing to talk the talk, but you got to walk the walk. I mean, you and, and others have done, a, I think, a great job with Hamilton Police Services in, in building a bridge there uh, with some of the training and instruction that has gone on over the last couple of years and with only, sadly, only two of the, uh, po- the political members of the Police Services Board. But uh, to, back to your point, you know, from your report from a year ago, uh, flags are not enough, and, and there's got to be a lot more discussion and interaction that I think that goes on. And uh, this, again, on, on the surface, as you mentioned, your initial reaction, it sounds like a really good idea. But it really, what it does now, it really kind of underscores the fact that, you know what, there's still not enough talking going on here. That's right. Or, in fact, listening. Well, I think it's more important for listening. Uh, I think um, allies, straight allies and cisgender allies to the trans community have really good hearts and really good intentions. But even myself as a cisgender person, I fall very short many times around my understanding and inclusion of the trans community. And I think that um, my stance right now around a lot of this is listening. And I think, and I call on, uh, you know, straight people around sexual orientation issues to, to, to listen. And I, you know, call on the rest of us, you know, just, and certainly city council um, to be attentive to these voices. And as this trans policy comes forward in a couple of uh, weeks or so, um, there is an opportunity for uh, a call for training again. Uh, Trans 101 training for staff in this case would be essential, and um, they're, they're missing some good opportunities. And so listening is important, absolutely. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Canadian military commanders have been warned that veterans that suffer from mental illnesses, post-traumatic stress disorder, and others are being bullied by fellow soldiers online. The fear is, obviously, this could prompt some people to even commit suicide. There's a great deal of angst going on about this. Uh, the military themselves are involved in this. A number of veterans are involved in this. And a lot of finger-pointing going on. Joining us to talk about this and uh, the implications is Michael Blaze, president and founder of Canadian Veterans Advocacy. And, uh, Michael, first of all, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again today. Yeah, Bill, good to be here. Hey, what, what's going on here? 
Oh, well, you know, this is a uh, long-standing issue. If you've read the uh, the letter, you can, you'll note that the yeah. uh, young sergeant there referred to me as a moron due to my, uh, you know, advocacy against the former conservative government on behalf of the veterans or on behalf of the sacred obligation, amongst others. And uh, it's very tragic. And, you know, I mean, this is not an isolated incident, although it's one that is noteworthy in the sense that it has escalated to such a high degree that you have a full colonel, you know, from London, Ontario, Colonel Brock Millen, you know, writing a letter to very senior members of the military hierarchy explaining his concerns and expressing fears, which I shared, that if this doesn't stop, one of these goofs are going to push someone over the limit and there's going to be a death, and they will be responsible. It was their behavior that that created it. It was their reckless behavior online, thinking that we're all anonymous and and invisible people there when we're not. And, you know, I, I found the, uh, you know, today's article very interesting in the sense that, you know, where Mr. Hood said there were officers within D&D who supported him when he was out calling seriously stressed out wounded veterans whack jobs. Yeah. This is unconscionable. Those, those senior officers should have been jacking him up. He should have been at attention answering for his, uh, for his, for, for what he had done, and being taught a very stern lesson that this isn't the way the family works, son, that uh, we don't bullshit people by saying, oh, I'm a sergeant, and this is the way I talk. No, no, I was a sergeant. I never spoke to any soldier of mine like that. And if you have to resort to bullying in order to get respect from your soldiers, you shouldn't be wearing the rank, period. So I was very uh, disappointed on reading this uh, article this morning. And frankly, I'm going to send a letter to the Chief of Defense Staff, General Vance, inquiring just as to what the hell happened here. Because, uh, you know, this is ongoing. Look at this reporter supposedly gets a, a, a threat, you know, for, for publishing Parish at your peril. What the hell is that? You know, I, I just find this is uh, spiraling out of control. It's out of control for one reason, because the Permanent National Defense did not step in when this man's leadership was questioned and, and did the appropriate actions and sanctioned him and established that uh, this is not how leaders in the Canadian Armed Forces act. You know, we understand mental trauma. We are all exposed to mental trauma. There are no whack jobs within our community. We are all brothers and sisters, and those in the leadership role who have that attitude have no place within that role. You know, Mike, you and I talked about this a couple of years ago, that the, the concern, uh, you have expressed it, and I know others that have been watching what's been going on with veterans and their treatment have expressed it, that, you know, we didn't want this to get political. That the criticism was against the government of the day, and I, we don't give a damn what your political affiliation is. I mean, the, the, the number one priority here should be veterans and, and the care of veterans, not necessarily who wins the next election. And it kind of looks like some of the people, including some of the ones that you mentioned here that, that have been posting some of this stuff, clearly are putting politics ahead of the best interest of veterans. Well, I don't think it's a surprise that one of the first uh, things that former Minister O'Toole did was provide one of these people with a minister's commendation and a big slap on the back for good job done, brother. Well, now we're reaping the consequences. And the consequences are not on a political level. They're on a brotherhood level, a sisterhood level, a Canada's sons and daughters level, wherein we, who have deployed and served, are being bullied by those within our own community, and our leadership is not stepping up and doing the appropriate actions. 
there's another element to this that I find just as troubling is that for the most part, I'm getting the sense that uh, the authorities, those that could and should step in here, Mike, are suggesting we already dealt with this. There's, there's no problem anymore. Well, you know, that's what it appears to be in the article. And, you know, did they deal with it? Well, you know, when you read uh, Mr. Hood's comments on how they supported him, I mean, well, what just, just what manner did they deal with him? You know, they bring him in, give him a wink-wink, oh, well, you got to calm down online, you're peeing off the civvies. No, 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 no. What happened there? That should have been a disciplinary action. You know, they're out there making, uh, calling civilians and former veterans morons, et cetera, et cetera. They're engaging in uh, profanity, lace, diatribe, things that are driving fellow veterans and serving members over the line. And the response that they provided, at least as far as I can see through this article, is woefully insufficient and only breeds more contempt. Yeah, and, and I understand. I saw the rationale here, too. You know, the, the explanation was, well, I'm an infantry sergeant and I speak the language I speak. There, there's notwithstanding what rank you hold, there's a protocol to be followed in the military, isn't there? Absolutely. You know, and that was embarrassing to me as a sergeant to read that, you know, because I served with many. We are the linchpin of the Canadian forces. I have no doubt that the sergeants, the senior NCOs, are the cornerstone of any military. And to have a sergeant come out and blame and label us like that is ludicrous and I find extremely offensive. It just, you know, for somebody who's, who's being victimized by this and somebody who's, who's suffering from, you know, PTSD and, and, and dealing with this, and, and as you've articulated so well over the last number of years, Mike, these people are fighting their own battle with the bureaucracy to try to get what is rightfully theirs. It's, it's got to be disheartening at, at best and, and, as you say, almost tragic at worst to know that, look, at, you know, their fellow soldiers are the ones that are beating up on them now. Well, and, and what's the biggest battle? What's the biggest hurdle? Stigma. Stigma, which is perpetuated by crap like this, when you have someone who, get this, he's, he's, he's with the Legion. He's one of the top OSIS coordinators there, and he thinks that people who are stressed out are whack jobs. I mean, that terminology should never, ever, 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 ever be used when we're, when we're talking with people who have suffered extraordinary trauma in war and peace. I mean, we have to understand this is not normal. These people are hurt very badly. They're reaching out for help, that we are a very small brotherhood and sisterhood, and that within our community the obligation lies upon us not to treat them like jerks and, and, and call them whack jobs, no, but to open our hearts, to open our minds, to reach forward and prevent, to, 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 to offer guidance, to be there when they need someone to speak to. And, you know, I find especially, especially at the senior NCO level, especially at the sergeant level, because I'm telling you, if that young soldier can't go to his sergeant to talk to him about issues that are, that are concerning him without being concerned about being bullied or being labeled weak or being labeled a couch potato or, or whatever other term of providence is floating around, the trust is broken and the entire Canadian Armed Forces suffers as a consequence. Mike, is there a concern here because of the fact that, with the DND, for instance, that they haven't seemed to have taken any any strong action on this? That that maybe some of these some of these feelings that, that are being articulated on online are really the feelings of, of people in that department that oh, it permeates that not. department. I hope not, but it does beg the question, does it not? Yeah. And you know, I'm glad you asked it because I wasn't going to bring it up, but I'm glad you asked it because yes. 
I mean, if I was an average person listening to this radio show or reading that, I'd be going, wow, if that happened on my job site, buddy would be fired. Or, or there would be severe disciplinary actions had I went to my human resources, uh, you know, and said that I was being bullied on the job site. And yet, you know, this was uh, reported at a very high level. It broke in the media first. It didn't start low. It went high and it rolled downhill. And yes, now we have to ask these questions. Is this the actual thought process that's happening at DND? I don't believe it is, but there may be elements where there that are in need of a corrective. Uh, well, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm not making an accusation. I'm just asking the question no. here. But, you know, you connect the dots here. And how many stories have we heard about inaction and red tape, you know, surrounding people that are in desperate need of help right now? And now with this story and, and the attitude that seems to be characterized about some of the people in DND anyway, you got to ask yourself is maybe the reason there's so much red tape there is because, you know, they really don't believe in, in what's going on. They don't believe in the assistance programs that, that, that you and others have been advocating for for years now. Well, I can I can speak on behalf of someone that I've spoken to this one-on-one -on -one several times, and that's the current chief of defense staff, Jonathan Vance. And I can assure you that's not his attitude. Uh, you know, I mean, it's one of the few uh, pleasurable moments I get when I go to Ottawa, it seems, talking to the general, not a bureaucrat, not a politician, talking in plain speak. And I know that General Vance is fully committed into establishing a world-class fighting organization without this rot within. But, you know, I mean, I'm sure that he didn't provide the disciplinary measures for this inconsequential, you know, act either. And that someone else was, uh, you know, talked to Mr. Hood and provided this counseling or however it went. But as we can see by the article, it was clearly ineffective. So where do we go? That you've got DND, you've got the the military themselves who probably should have taken ownership of this. They say they have and they've dealt with it right now. But uh, I, I guess the overriding question right now is: Okay, what about the fallout from this? I mean, what, you know, what about the people that have been adversely affected by this? What happens with them? Oh, absolutely, they're still suffering. You know, and worse. You know, I always say, you know, people say, well, it's just Facebook, Mike. It's just social network. I said, no. For the wounded, you have to understand, they are they were like me. They are hermiting. They're not going out. That Facebook site is their only, only connection with the past, with their friends, with life sometimes, because they're so isolated. And that when incidents like this happen within that community, it is acidic, destructive, catastrophic, maybe. And that we have to do everything possible in order to mitigate that immediately. Like, we have a policy on the Canadian Veterans Advocacy Social Network. You bully, you're out, period. There's no excuses. There's no excuses for bullying a fellow soldier, whether you disagree with them about politics, whether you have disagreements about on service, no matter what the disagreement is. We are warriors, and as a family, we talk out our problems. We don't bully our way through them. And I pray that, that enough uh, public awareness is drawn through David's article to, 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 to raise this specter in the Canadian forces and to have someone, maybe even General Vance, put out a dictate that the buck stops now, that any bullying will be treated the same level as sexual assault is. There is no room in our brand of brothers and sisters for such behavior. And that, my friend, would be leadership. You know, we see this stuff on social media all the time, on Facebook and on Twitter, and, and some attacks, and it's it's disgusting. I mean, you know, and, and oftentimes these are nameless, faceless people that, that would do this sort of thing. 
but you would not expect to see this uh, in this realm here with with you know army people or veterans talking about veterans like this. Uh, and and some of the phrases, and you referred to some of them already, that uh, the they have accused uh, some of these people that are suffering as a result of their military service. Uh, irrelevant little, well, you can figure what the next word is. It begins with an S. Uh, poser boy, couch potato, wacko vets, things like that. Uh, and, and what I find incredulous is that some of the people that are posting this stuff are saying, well, that's not really bullying. I was just responding to some of the stuff they were saying about me. Of uh, course it's bullying. It's bullying at the most crudest definition of bullying. You know it, I know it, and I hope everyone who read that lame-ass excuse knows it as well. Because there's no place for this within this area. And it's not only within, this, uh, within our military community. I mean, mental health is a serious issue across this nation. There's not enough resources applied. There are people adrift. There are civilians that are just like veterans. They're isolating. They're, they're communicating with their friends through small groups on Facebook. They're seeking relief for it any way that they can. And, yes, that includes social networking. And when we have, you know, systematic bullying going on that, 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 that seems to be, you know, not tolerated, well, you know, condoned in some form, you know, I find that's just ridiculous and that, that now leadership has to be defined and that anyone within the Canadian Armed Forces that, that would disrespect, disrespect, our brothers and sisters, those who serve, those who wear the same bloody uniform as do they, have no place within our band of, of uh, men and women because we are special. We, we, we need that cohesive unit. We need a brother, a brother and sisterhood untainted by hatred, by bigotry, by, 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 by crap like this. We need to be a cohesive unit ready to stand on guard for this nation at any moment. And when we have elements within, and they're, they're minor, thank God this is not a prominent or a predominant uh, a feeling within the armed forces, but when we have cancerous aspects like this within our community, it's time that they be excised for the good of the, of the team. Mission team self. We always say that in the military. Mission team self. When the self becomes obstructive to the mission and the team, it's time for the self to remove himself from the equation. And, you know, we have people that are, that are, are taking advantage of this horrible situation. You know, they're, 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 they're getting themselves little gongs for it, you know, and they're out there saying, oh, I can do this and I can do this, and, and what he says is irrelevant, and, and you know, they're just sucks. They, they, they don't know if that's not right. We are all brothers and sisters. And we, the collective, have been playing by the rules. We have been offering respect to our brothers and sisters. We've been attempting to help them out when they're in free fall or in crisis. We don't turn on them. We don't call them lazy. We don't call them the other couch potato. We don't call them, you know, uh, wacko vets when we know they've sustained mental trauma. We just don't do that. And when people come out on in the national newspaper and act in such disres disrespectful conduct, there should be sanctions. Well, that's obviously up to the DND and the military to decide whether that's going to happen. But I find it uh, r sad, really, that uh, that some of the comments that are going on there are directed at guys like you and Sean Bruyer, uh, who have been advocating for veterans, not politically. Uh, and you'll call anybody out. I don't care what political stripe they are. If they're not doing the job they're supposed to be doing for veterans, you've been critical. And so is Sean, as you should be and as we all should be. 
Uh, but for somebody to actually turn the you know the, the the tables on you and start targeting you for standing up for veterans is just ridiculous. Well, and you know why? I, I, and Yilka, you've got broad shoulders, I know, Mike. But at the same time, you got to wonder about the perspective of the people that are doing it. I got scars from the nape of my back, from the to the tips of my ankles, from people that you got to wonder why are they doing that? Why are they acting like that? You know, but that's just the nature of the beast. Some people don't understand the sacred obligation this nation has to 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 those who have suffered extraordinary consequence on our behalf. Some people don't understand, even within our own community, that we have an obligation. That we have an obligation to be compassionate, not goofy to be uh, open-armed and willing to help, not, not shunning and disrespectful. No, the obligation's not being met by many within our brother and sisterhood, and the obligation is upon us to call them out now and say, that's enough. You're either part of the team or you're not. Make up your bloody mind. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, a lot of talk going on about uh, graffiti here at the city as well. You may remember a few years ago, there was actually, a, I thought, a pretty positive initiative uh, about uh, going after graffiti and uh, those responsible for this. And uh, Councillor Sam Marula is uh, suggesting that maybe the city needs to uh, revive that whole initiative and that whole program. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Sam. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I'm doing very well. Yourself? Good. I remember a conversation you and I had a few years ago uh, with a motion that you had put forward at that time about about uh, dealing with graffiti. Maybe you could spend just a couple of seconds uh, reminding our listeners exactly what that was all about. Sure. Yeah, this dates back to uh, 2012. And the issue really is, as most people recognize, our bylaws are enforced in a reactive manner, meaning that when a complaint comes in, uh, it, it's enforced. Uh, I feel that some bylaws uh, need to be uh, more proactive rather than reactive. And so at the time, in 2012, I had staff assess uh, the possibility of a pilot project to ensure that we had somebody assigned to proactively assess graffiti problems throughout the city and enforce accordingly. So it was a pilot project that occurred during a summer, which was very successful and ended up in the back burner for various reasons. Uh, so as a direct result of following up on what the actual status of that program was, I, it was determined that uh, perhaps uh, it was uh, it fell through the cracks. So as a direct result, I'm, I revisited the entire motion itself, assessed the success associated with it, and asked staff to report back on implementing it on a more ongoing basis uh, for the future. Uh, staff uh, were supportive of it and was unanimously supported by council, and here we are. Sam, when you say successful, uh, in in what context? Uh, were there fewer cases? Did you, was were you able to stop some of these uh, activities before they actually occurred? No. What it basically the success was measured based on eradication. So in essence, okay, identifying that there was a problem and then ha- taking action to to eliminate it. So at present, I think the frustration is when we see particularly on public property, we see graffiti, and people wonder how it could just stay there for so long without the city taking action. Well, unless we get a complaint, we're not taking action. I think that's foolhardy. So as a result, every everybody in the city that works for the city, we have a lot of eyes out there, should be calling in uh, if they see any type of graffiti on private, or more importantly, public property, where I think that is where the frustration grows about us not taking action. Well, and I think one of the more obvious examples of that, and again, I'll harken back to the conversation you and I had when you started this initially, uh, were the overpasses on the link. Uh, they were used to see graffiti all the time. And, and i got to tell you, 
anecdotally, as somebody who drives that road an awful lot, uh, it doesn't happen much anymore. So obviously there was some, some effect, I would think, that this program had on, on that sort of activity. Exactly. And as a result of it, I think we need this to be far more aggressive and consistent and predictable with the bylaw. And I think it should be uh, permanently or perpetually in a, in a proactive enforcement mode rather than reactive, which I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, is foolhardy. Are we over this uh, this wordsmithing about uh, what is street art and what is graffiti? Graffiti is vandalism. It's not street art. Yeah. Uh, it's, these are two very different things. And, and I understand as far as the city bylaws are concerned, too. But, but you know, there are some that are suggesting leave these people alone. They're actually enhancing the city. I, I, we're not there yet. Are we, we've, we've, come, we've come past that? I, I think so. I, the bottom line is it is a crime. If you see someone doing it and it's a crime in progress, the police are state clearly call 911 so it's a serious offense and one that costs the city well over two million dollars a year uh to deal with on public property not to mention millions that is spent by the private sector to deal with it uh, and insurance and whatever else uh, impacts our, our society so in essence it's not um it's not an i guess it's not an unvictimized crime or non-victim crime it, it is we have a lot of victims the taxpayer being the victim the actual property owner being the victim. So we do need to be aggressive in dealing with this issue. On the other side of this equation is the fact that there are some talented street artists. And I think it would be a great idea, as I mentioned in the motion, to dedicate or designate certain parts of the city with canvases to allow these street artists to display their their skill. And I think that, that in many ways, can enhance, for instance, a park environment or uh, one area of the city that uh, perhaps can be designated accordingly. Look at it, if there are talented people out there, you know, bring it on. I mean, uh, you know, there's a a section. I think you've been down to Chicago, and when you're taking the uh, the L there, the, uh, the their elevated uh, system, uh, and all you see are the backs of of rundown old buildings. Well, somebody painted all of these things, and it's it's spectacular. It, it looks gorgeous. Yeah. I'm I'm fine with that. It's just somebody that comes up with a can of spray paint and just says, you know what, that's a nice big wall there. I'm going to put something on there without permission. Uh, that's that's where you draw the line. Absolutely. And there's a distinction, and one that's quite evident just by looking at it. Um, but the bottom line is, I think there's a there's a place for it if, if it's really skilled art. And the question becomes, so where do we want that to be displayed? And that's what staff will be assessing with the motion that was passed uh, last week. Okay. Where where are you? You're in budget processes right now, but where are you from a financial standpoint? When you say dedicated staff, are, are we looking at, at hiring somebody to do this, or can you do this with the existing complement? It would be a student or summer student to begin with to assess again as a pilot project. Then it would be built into into our existing budget. Again, when we're, when we're enforcing bylaws, it's either revenue neutral or, or uh, it's revenue neutral in the sense that we can't make money from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in essence, the fines that uh, we do subject uh, 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 accordingly do create a revenue for the city. Uh, we don't want to go down that road, obviously. We prefer, we prefer not to have anyone to fine. Uh, the bottom line is, though, there is a responsibility for property ownership, and with that comes the fact that if you do become victimized, uh, from graffiti, you need to clean it up. And there's a bylaw that can be enforced accordingly, which we will be for- enforcing proactively. The The social component of this is that there are some people that non-commercial, non-multi-residential property owners that are, for instance, people with disabilities or seniors or on fixed income that become victimized twice, once by the graffiti 
second by the city enforcing the bylaw. That's where I think we need to assess potentially uh, a means of dealing with it through an in-kind type of approach in providing the necessary tools to eradicate the graffiti. So that would be for those that can't afford it, and it would be a means testing accordingly. But I think it's important to recognize that there are people out there that are going to be victimized twice, once with the graffiti, secondly by the city enforcing the bylaw, and we're addressing that accordingly as well. But you have heard in the past uh, from even some commercial business owners okay. and property owners, Sam, that have said, look, if you're going to do that for them, what about for us too? You know, our, we're, we have a very thin bottom line, and we can't afford to keep doing this and redoing it and fixing it, and then it happens again a week after, et cetera, like that. Uh, is there any sympathy for those people? Well, obviously I have sympathy, but we can't do it. Firstly, it would be considered bonusing, so it's illegal. Uh, secondly, we can't afford to do it, and they would have to build it into their budget. But there are means of there are means of addressing this from a from a uh, private sector component. What they have found, for instance, if you have murals on on commercial buildings, uh, they're less likely to be targeted, particularly if they have a nationalistic approach to it, Canadian flag, soldiers, that type of a, a hockey Canada. So there are means of addressing it, um, and there are there are actual means of addressing it that are very successful. So. If you're a business owner or a private property owner, um, either commercial or multi-res, you have to take steps accordingly and build it into your business plan. What about education for some of those commercial owners to suggest maybe ways that they can mitigate the impact? And whether it's whether it's being acquainted with street artists and, and, and others that might be able to say, yeah, I can do something for you. And they tend not to, to go in there. I mean, that's, that's, that's a component that maybe a lot of business owners would not be aware of. Yeah, that coupled with the fact that there are mean, other means of, uh, you can engage them, but I think for the most part, you're going to find that there's a certain element out there that are beyond reproach, and they're going to continue vandalizing for the sake of vandalizing. Those are the ones we really want to come down heavy on from a, from a criminal enforcement perspective. Again, the the home home ownership and the and the commercial building owners, multi-res owner, we don't really want to come down hard on them, but we want them to understand that with that ownership of that property, comes certain responsibilities. So whether that be, and I find that a number of people now or business owners are actually, rather than having brick, which is an easy canvas to paint on and very costly to eliminate, what they're doing is they're painting the brick so that if someone does come by with the graffiti, you don't have to sandblast it, you just paint it with the color in which you painted that brick. So we see that along King Street and Main Street, a lot of my own uh, constituency and business owners in my area have taken that approach. So there are ways of mitigating uh, this issue, but with that ownership comes responsibility, and with our responsibility on council and with police services is to enforce that law from a criminal perspective and those that are vandalizing, but also an enforcement perspective for those aren't cleaning up the mess afterwards. This this is maybe a little bit beyond your realm, Sam, but... When it comes to, to the penalties for those, and, and I know that the result of, of the, the initiative you had a few years ago, uh, you got some very useful stats here, uh, for instance, suggesting that 10 of the, uh, well, they call them painters, I call them vandals, that are responsible for up to 30% of the identifiable greedy tag. So in other words, there's, a, there's an element there of saying it's, it's mostly, it's these guys an awful lot of the time. Uh, but they keep doing it and doing it, and, and it's been suggested that maybe one of the reasons for that is they get a slap on the wrist when they are caught doing it. Uh, now, I, now, that's, as to say, beyond your bailiwick. You can't actually say, yeah, let's throw these guys away or whatever the case might be or make them clean it or make them pay for it or whatever the case might be. But but is, is your study going to address that possibility, too, that, that maybe maybe there has to be something a little more punitive for the people that are consistent uh, abusers of this? 
Well, the crime itself is in the criminal code of Canada. So that's, uh, as you mentioned, not within the municipal jurisdiction. It is, it is federal. The courts themselves who are imposing the penalties is more of a provincial and federal yeah. jurisdiction. All, all we can do is uh, enforce, enforce the laws from, a, from the criminal code perspective and advocate for tougher penalties. But the bottom line is the precedent set in the court proceedings. And as a result, everything has to be taken into account and put in perspective. And uh, the, the, the courts have a way of doing that, and I agree that the penalties are nowhere near perhaps what they should be. But again, a lot of people can say that about a lot of crimes uh, in Ontario and in Canada. So uh, we just have to put it in perspective and do what we can within our jurisdiction and then lobby accordingly to other levels of government to try to find that deterrent. Uh, but for the most part, when you're dealing with this element, particularly adolescents, um, they, they never think they're going to get caught anyway. So really, the punitive aspect itself uh, might make us feel good, but I don't believe it's much of a deterrent. Is there any discussion with other communities? This is not just a Hamilton-only problem. Uh, to, to explore and see what other communities are doing, maybe some things they're doing that, that we might learn from as well? It's an international problem. No matter yeah. where you go, whether it be Europe or North America or Asia, for that matter, it really is not isolated to, to us locally. Um, and there is no jurisdiction except those jurisdictions that have allowed for the freedom of expression in certain designated areas that have benefited from it, as you mentioned, like in Chicago. So that component and providing a canvas for them, for those that are truly artists, goes a long way. But for those that are vandals, uh, I, I, I don't think there is an answer to that. It's like any other crime. Why do people commit crimes uh, is really the question, and this would fall into the same category. Is this essentially a downtown issue, Sam? No. It's clear across the city, including the suburbs. Because I know that the study that, uh, that resulted from the work that you did indicated that most of uh, uh, the illegal activity that was going on was in wards two and three. Well, actually, four was included in that originally, but that was where the most concentration of it was. Okay. There is no, there's no corner of the city that hasn't been impacted by some sort of uh, graffiti, particularly on utility uh, utility. Um, uh, Type of, uh, well, those, those, yeah, those community mailboxes. Exactly. They're, and, and, they're like a canvas the, for them, aren't they? Well, Canada Post, uh, again, was, was very creative. If you notice, they, they created almost a, a graffiti type of bust uh, scenario to them where they provide all the multicolored aspects, which is a deterrent because if you can't see the, the vandalism, why actually commit it? And that's why it's important that we're creative in how we address this and why a lot of the commercial uh, businesses are going towards murals where they're being targeted to uh, provide more of a deterrent accordingly. With this, uh, and, and the statement, obviously, and the fact that this is, is rampant in just about every area of the city, every ward in the city right now, I, I would imagine you're going to get council support for this idea. Oh, yes, absolutely. There's universal support, and uh, also it's recognized that some of this activity is gang-related, so there is a, a police endorsement to all of this as well in, in trying to eradicate it and identify where the problems are. And it helps them do their job as well for other uh, crime that might be um, organized in the city. So in many ways, it, it helps in many fronts. And it's a, just a concerted effort to try to deal with an issue in a very thorough uh, but practical manner. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.